0: Welcome to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church in Donaldson, Arkansas. This is Elder Dan Sammons preaching in our regular Sunday morning service. I have a thought on my mind today, and that thought is relentless depravity. In recent weeks, Elder Phelan and I have preached on election and on predestination, and these are core truths that the church stands on and are really helpful in understanding the Bible. And I wanted to take up the topic of depravity today and kind of set it before you. I've heard some preachers mention that if you can get people grounded on the doctrine of depravity, if you can get people to understand what man's condition was as a result of the fall, a lot of the other Bible doctrines follow from that, right? We always talk about, you know, if man is dead, If he's dead, he's not going to be able to do anything to fix his spiritual problem. So if you can kind of establish the attributes of this state of death and trespasses and sin that man fell into, a lot of the other aspects of salvation by grace follow naturally from that. If you think about man being in an utterly corrupt condition, then if there's some people that are going to get saved, it's going to have to be the result of something God did in terms of choosing a people rather than something that man did. Man's in this dead state. So he can't elect himself, which is the doctrine of much of Christianity. They will make a decision and thereby become a member of the elect. Well, if they're really in this dead state spiritually, that means God's going to have to do the election. And that's why we say it's unconditional, right? Unconditional election. If not all are going to be saved which the Bible clearly teaches that hell is a real place that has human occupancy, then you know that the atonement of Christ is limited. So that follows from this as well. If man is in this dead state, then grace is going to have to be immediate. I refer to immediate Holy Spirit regeneration I use that as the I in TULIP when I talk about it, more so than what is the more conventional thing, which is irresistible grace, which means that when God decides to regenerate someone, they don't have any choice in the matter. God sees an object of His mercy, He speaks life unto them, and they are given spiritual life. Well, that's true. That is certainly true. But I prefer to use that I as immediate Holy Spirit regeneration because what a lot of TULIP-affirming Christians out there mean By the eye in TULIP is a little bit different than what we mean. And immediate Holy Spirit regeneration really makes the matter more clear. We are talking about an irresistible work of grace where God speaks life into one of His children out there. right? Because ye are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That's the transaction we're talking about. However, when we say immediate Holy Spirit regeneration, we're saying... This is the voice of the Son of God speaking life into someone, not some gospel preacher or somebody handing out a gospel tract or anything like that. It is immediate in that there is no mediator. It is simply a transaction that takes place between God and the object of His mercy. And then finally, the whole notion of preservation. Well, uh, if man can't do anything to get himself in a state of eternal salvation... And he's going to need to stay there. And God's going to get the job done for those he's chosen to save. That work has to be a preserving work. And man is incapable of preserving himself in a condition that he can't even get himself into in the first place. So a lot of the notion of why salvation is by grace really hinges on the idea of man's depravity. And I call it relentless depravity. Because there's no loopholes in it. It's just once you are established in man's fallen condition it's going to become apparent to you that God has to do the saving. And that's really where it all hinges on. Now, I'm going to start in Romans chapter 5 with an affirmation that we all know and love and agree with. And it's just one verse. It's very often quoted. But it kind of establishes that this relentless depravity that man fell into it's something that affects all of humanity it's not just a few people that are this way and a few people who are not in terms of man in his natural state they've all fallen into this condition wherefore this is Romans 5 12 wherefore as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned right nobody's getting out of this deal This is the condition that all of humanity is. All of humanity are sinners. They're sinners by nature, not by commission. The commission of sin in your life is merely an evidence of the fact that you were already a sinner. Now that is unique when compared to the situation that Adam and Eve were in. And that's a whole other topic to be explored. But Adam and Eve didn't have a sin nature, and yet they sinned. You have a sin nature inherited from their sin as a result of the fall. You think you're going to fare any better than them? They didn't even have a sin nature. And still they were able to fall to the temptation of sin. But man, as a result of that, one man sin entered into the world. That one man is Adam. That is Adam's transgression. Now what did you do to be instrumental in having this sin nature passed on to you and be made a sinner? This says by one man's actions... You were made a sinner. Now, most of Christianity will take this and say, yeah, I agree. There was a fall and Adam sinned and that's what made us all sinners. They will go that far. And they will say, yeah, it was what Adam did that put us in this condition. And we didn't do anything to be put in that condition. You follow that? Most of Christianity is pretty solid on that, I would say. It's on the flip side, on the correction where the problem starts to get introduced. You see, Jesus did something by one man, and it had a saving effect for his people. And that doesn't have anything to do with what you do either. And that's the part they struggle with. They're like, yeah, well, I mean, I understand that Adam did something, and that made me a sinner. But I can't really accept that Christ did something, and that makes me righteous. It's got to be Christ did something, plus a whole host of other stuff that I had to do to be enfranchised in this work. That's not how it works. Because by one man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Now we'll look at that in a little more depth here later. But the thing is, the extent of this depravity and this sin nature that was passed upon all men, it goes to all of humanity. No one escapes this declaration that's here. Now what's the effect of this condition we're in? That's really what we want to talk about today. When I talk about relentless depravity, I'm talking about Is this an escapable condition? What's the extent of this depravity that we have? And to look into that a little bit, let's look at John chapter 3. We're going to look at what Paul says about this depravity here in a minute, but I want to look a little bit at what Jesus says about it in this conversation with Nicodemus. This is Jesus teaching something about the effects of the fall. And there's a lot to learn in this. It's a very popular passage of Scripture. We'll take a moment to step through it. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, that's truly, truly, literally, amen, amen. That's what Jesus is saying there. I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That is Jesus Christ's very concise summary of the condition of relentless depravity. You are as blind as a bat to spiritual things unless you are born again you cannot so much as see them they don't mean anything to you blind as a bat until you're born again now this completely flies in the face of much of what is preached in christianity which is kind of a you know everybody's got a little spark of good in them and if you can fan it into a flame of righteousness they have got a little bit of sight it's kind of what they're saying well they can kind of see but if they kind of get up and Wash their face and you know, rub their eyes a little bit, and maybe squint, they could get to a place where they could start to see some truth. But Jesus Christ says that it's not a matter of cleaning out your eyes or doing some preparation on your part. It's a matter of you're blind, and unless you're born again, you'd have no spiritual capacity of sight. Now, what this does is it says depravity is relentless. Man is utterly incapable of extricating himself from this situation. And if he's going to be extricated from it, it's going to take a miraculous act of God. You're going to have to be born again. And that's something you cannot do. That's something only God can do. That is a very offensive notion. It's offensive to Nicodemus. He's kind of blown away by it a little bit. He shouldn't be. And we'll see that in just a minute. But When you're kind of wrapped up in a religion that's talking about, well, we keep the law and that's what makes us righteous before God, you're kind of saying, well, through our law keeping, we give ourselves the capacity to see spiritual things and to be right before God. And Jesus is coming right out of the gate saying it doesn't work that way. Unless God has done something for you, you're going to have no spiritual perception whatsoever. I would tell you that when Jesus says, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God This is the complete opposite of what is broadly taught in Christianity today, which is this. Most of Christianity teaches, except a man see the kingdom of God in the form of the gospel, he cannot be born again. That is what the majority of professing Christians believe. They literally believe the exact opposite of what Jesus Christ taught on this matter. That should land in the middle of the room with a dull thud like I dropped an anvil right here. It's a very harsh reality that I'm pointing out, but it is undeniably true. If we can go up and continuously show the blind man some gospel imagery, he will eventually acquire sight. That's what they believe. Keep showing them the gospel. They will acquire sight through this. But Jesus is saying, if they don't have sight they're never going to see this gospel image you're putting in front of them. You see that? Mm -hmm. It's offensive. The system of the world always wants to take the ability of getting men into heaven or getting them born again and put it in man's hands. Billy Graham wrote a book called How to Be Born Again. I mean, that's literally what he's saying. He's saying, I I see this, and almost all Christians see this in the Scriptures. They at least get this. They say, well, Jesus is talking about being born again, and it's really important. So I give them credit on that. They recognize that the concept is important. But Jesus is not issuing an imperative command here. He's not telling him, do this to become born again. If he did that, he'd be destroying the metaphor of being born again, because you don't do anything to be born in your natural birth. Jesus is literally stating to him, this is totally a matter that's in God's hands. You are shut up to the mercy of God in the matter of your eternal salvation. So, while the professing Christian world is constantly trying to show people images in the form of gospel preaching to people who they believe are dead in trespasses and in sins, and they believe that in so doing it's going to give them sight, that's precisely the opposite of what Jesus taught. He said, if you're not born again, you don't have this sight to begin with. Pretty offensive idea. I would say this. This idea is as broadly misunderstood right now in 2023 among American evangelicals as it was among the Nicodemian teachers of the first century. It was just as dark to most Christians as it was to Nicodemus when he's confronting it here and kind of going, what are we even talking about? And here's Nicodemus. He's been schooled in religion. He, he knows something about this religion that kind of comes out of the Bible, this Jewish faith. He's, he's got some ideas that he understands that are correct. He knows some correct things about God. But on this matter, he just doesn't get it at all. And it's very disorienting to him. And it's very much the same today among most Christian evangelicals in our community. They literally believe the opposite of what Jesus Christ taught here. Now, does that mean they're going to hell? No, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that. It just means they don't understand something about their parent. To this day, I'm 55 years old. I still don't understand some things about my parents. Right? I'm going to go to my grave not understanding everything about my parents. I'm sure my kids don't understand a lot of things about me. doesn't mean I don't love them. You see, understanding is a lagging indicator of grace. It's not a prerequisite to obtaining eternal salvation. It's a lagging indicator of your state of grace. You see, as a disciple, you can learn things and you can come to a better and better understanding. I don't doubt for a minute that people who have heard that Jesus Christ is a Savior, that He died for the sins of His people, and that those who believe that, are among his sheep. I don't doubt for a second that people who believe that declaration are making evident that they have been born again. But being born again and understanding the idea of how you got born again are two completely separate things. Mm -hmm. I've said this before. There's been many times that when I was a child, I didn't have any idea where I came from in terms of birth. I didn't know how any of that happened. Didn't mean I wasn't born though, did it? My understanding of the mechanics of how that works don't have anything to do with whether or not I'm alive, right? So I say this to be clear about it, not to launch out in hostility towards people who don't understand this, but to make it clear enough to where we really know what we're talking about and to understand the distinction here. Maybe as you're talking to your friends and neighbors about these things, you can help point this out to them. It'll be profitable to them in terms of their understanding of things. What was Nicodemus' response? Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Making it pretty evident that Nicodemus is not really following the lesson here, right? He's, he's, there's a lot that's been said on this back and forth conversation, but at a minimum, he's clearly not getting the Lord's point here. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus is at this point doubling down on the notion of this is something that God does. It's not something that you do. And many in Christendom will say, well, it says water here. So this is talking about water baptism. It is not speaking of water baptism. Every time the Bible mentions water in some kind of connection with salvation, it is not trying to tell you that water baptism is required for your eternal salvation. It's just not. I mean, the thief on the cross wasn't baptized. Did Jesus lie to him? No, that alone tells you that water, none of those people in the Old Testament were baptized under the New Testament ordinance of baptism. So it's evident that water baptism is not in view here, but even if you look more closely at the language here, this water and of the Spirit, that and is just, it can be considered in the form of even of the Spirit, water. It's speaking of the same thing. Water. This washing of water and regeneration are closely associated with one another in the Scripture. And it's really just talking about the same thing. It's talking about it in two different ways. The washing of water. Let me show you what I mean by that. Look at Titus 3.5. It's talking about our salvation. I'll start in 4. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done. By the way, baptism is a work of righteousness, is it not? It is something you're doing in obedience to the example set by Jesus Christ. It requires your willing and active participation. It is indisputably an act of righteousness, and therefore is negated by the opening salvo in verse 5, not by works of righteousness which we have done. So you could take the idea of water baptism right off the table here in that alone. But look at this. But according to His mercy... See, it's God's decision in making mercy, not in anything else. According to His mercy, He saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. You see the allusion to washing, how regeneration is viewed in the Scriptures as a washing. You see why water and of the Spirit. They're talking about the same thing. The Bible uses this idea of washing as a metaphor for the regenerating act of God. So, he's really just talking about the same thing. He's still talking about regeneration. Be born of water and of the Spirit. That's the washing of regeneration. And unless that happens, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now, that verse alone is going to tell you that man cannot be instrumental in becoming born again, right? A man who is dead in trespasses and sins, is he in the flesh or is he in the Spirit? He is ever and only of and in the flesh, right? So what has he got to work with to try to become spiritually born again? He has the flesh. That's all he's got to work with. That which is born of flesh is flesh. Whatever he might do to institute some sort of birth in his life, some sort of spiritual birth, at the end of the day, his materials to work with are all flesh. And all they're ever going to produce is flesh. So there is a division between things of the flesh and things of the Spirit that man cannot cross. You know why that is? Because it's relentless depravity. You can't get out of this situation. Once you recognize that men who are dead in trespasses and in sins are ever and only in the flesh, and that's all they've got to work with, they're never going to get into the Spirit by something they do of themselves, because all they have to work with is the flesh. See that? That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, you must be born again. In other words, as a result of this thing that I told you, Men are in this relentless state of depravity. They can't get themselves out of it. It should be no marvel that I tell you, you've got to be born again to do this, and that means it's going to be something God's got to do. This should be no marvel to you whatsoever. He goes on to say this, "...the wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but thou canst not tell whence it cometh or whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit." Wind is totally out of our control. We don't have any idea. We can't change where it's coming, where it's going, any of that stuff. It's hard to imagine something that is more impossible to tame than the wind. And we can't make it blow where we want it to. This is what he is equating to the notion of regeneration and how God's mercy is dispensed among people. It is something that is in God's control, not in man's control. And it says it's this way for every one of them. There's no exceptions. Lots of Christian denominations, when they start getting into the matter of how they define salvation, and you start reading their writings on it, you'll find that they create lots of little exceptions here. Well, what about someone who is mentally retarded? Let's see. We believe that the gospel is instrumental in regeneration. Here's a typical view among many professing evangelicals. We believe that the gospel is instrumental in the regeneration of men. Okay? Very common belief. Probably most of your friends and neighbors believe this. Okay? What about the mentally retarded? They have no mental capacity to receive and believe gospel truth. What do you do with that? Well there's only two places you can go. You can say that's tough. They all end up in hell. Well that position has at least the advantage of saying it's consistent with the doctrine that the gospel is instrumental in their regeneration. At least they're being consistent with that truth. But many Christians who believe that are not willing to go there. And so then they open up exceptions to the rule. So they're Promoting an ironclad rule, the gospel is instrumental in regeneration. However, in some certain circumstances, because it won't conform to that, we have to open up these loopholes. This is very clearly seen in things like the Second London Confession of Faith, which is a, basically a carbon copy of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Now, section 10 on the effectual calling, if you read the first paragraph and the third paragraph, you'll see this door being opened. They say basically that you're regenerated by the Word, by which they mean the preached gospel. And they say that's the way most people are born again. However, those who are incapable of receiving gospel ministry, they have to be regenerated immediately by the Holy Spirit. See? Now they've got a loophole. Because they don't want to say that every abortion clinic is basically a one-way ticket to hell. You see where that doctrine would lead? If that's true, that you have to be regenerated by the gospel, then literally the abortion clinics all across this country are a one-way ticket to hell for those infants. Because you've got no way to save them. Well, they don't want to embrace that, although that would be consistent with their doctrine. They don't want to embrace that, so they say there has to be a separate system for those who are, incapable of receiving the ministry of the Word. Well, in that admission, we have agreement. The difference is relentless depravity makes it so that none of humanity is able to receive the gospel. You see? So we agree with their loophole. However, once you recognize that relentless depravity makes it so that no one except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The gospel is not going to get it done for anybody. We love that loophole, but the loophole in their system is how it works for everybody. You see that? So God has to do this in every instance. And thinking that, well, just because someone is a mature adult and they have normal, rational facilities that would allow them to listen to a gospel sermon and maybe understand the words that are being said, that's not instrumental in their regeneration. You know why? Because those natural capacities they have are things of the flesh. And to say that you got to have that in order to be born again is to say that the Spirit in the new birth is born in some sense of your flesh. Your rational capacities to hear language and sort of understand what was being said, you mull that around in your mind and somehow that flesh produces a spiritual birth. And Jesus has already said that's an impossibility. You see why depravity is relentless? Once you have this separation between fleshly things and spiritual things, man has no way to cross that barrier. And that means God has to be merciful to people and He has to do it by His own sovereign will. So man's got no perception in the matter. Immediate Holy Spirit regeneration is going to be the requirement here because man can't do anything. It has to be a sovereign work of God. It has to be the same for everyone. It doesn't matter what level of natural, rational capacities you have. God is no more hindered by an imbecile or an infant in the womb in regenerating and giving them spiritual life than He is someone who has normal, rational capacities. Why would we think that that's some impediment to God? We're talking about the God who created the universe, spoke it into existence out of nothing the reason this is problematic is because people want to insist that man has some involvement in getting people eternally saved, and he doesn't. Now the church is a saving institution, but when I make that declaration, I have to qualify it. We're not going to change the number of people who are going to end up in glory through gospel ministry. We couldn't change that number. We couldn't cause someone we couldn't cause one of God's sheep to end up in hell nor could we make it such that a goat's going to be in heaven no matter what we did that is the work of Christ it is absolutely certain he says things like I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish this is a promise he says he's going to lose not one of his sheep that number is set in stone there's nothing we can do about it yet The church is a saving institution. It can save you in the here and now. It can save you from ignorance. It can save you from disobedience. It can save you from a life of sin. It can save you from a lack of fellowship. There's any number of things that the church and the fellowship of the saints can save you from in the here and now. That's the purpose of the church, so that we're not walking in darkness. We understand these things and we can live our lives in a way that is in keeping with the truths that we say we believe. So, Man's got no perception. Immediate Holy Spirit regeneration is going to be required. It's a sovereign work of God. It's the same for all. And you know what? It's the same in the New Testament era as it was in the Old Testament era. It's a big impediment for a lot of folks. Well, it, it wasn't until Pentecost that people started being born again. Totally false. Totally false, but broadly believed. They say, well, back in the Old Testament, they didn't have the Holy Spirit in them. It came upon them. But they didn't have it in them the way we do in the New Testament. And that's what happened at Pentecost. That is totally false. The Bible won't stand for that. And I'm going to show you that Jesus taught this as well. But let me show you this first. Numbers chapter 27 and verse 18. Do you believe what the Lord says? If you do, this one's going to cause a lot of problems for the notion that those Old Testament saints didn't have the indwelling Holy Spirit. And the Lord said unto Moses... Take thee, Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit. Well, there goes the whole, well, the the Holy Spirit came upon them. It was like a hat they wore for a little while, right? They put this hat on and they could do some special works, but they didn't have it in them because nobody was born again in the Old Testament. Well, the Lord said unto Moses, take thee, Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit and lay thy hand upon him. That's the Lord Himself saying, He's got the indwelling Holy Spirit. That's because people in the Old Testament were born again immediately by God's power, just as they are in the New Testament. They just didn't have as much information as we have about how all this works out. The Bible talks about how those prophets of old, they were writing things a lot of times, they're kind of like wondering, what am I even talking about here? I'm writing these things down, I don't even understand fully all of these things. But, There's ample evidence in the Old Testament of people being born again, and that's one of the best passages, I think, to do that. But lest you think I'm straying from the path here, look at what Jesus says Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Nicodemus is pretty uh, confused here. He's like, "I'm really not following this lesson you're trying to get me. It's running very contrary to the Jewish religion I've been raised in, where I think, you know, I'm righteous because I'm keeping the law, and that we're the law keepers, and that's how you do it." Right? Very confused by this. How can these things be? Now look at this. Jesus answered and said unto him, "Art thou a master of Israel? You're a teacher." This would be the equivalent of like, you're basically a university professor in the school of religion here, the seminaries of the Jewish faith. You're a great professor of religion here. Art thou a master of Israel and knowest not these things? Now look, what Jesus just said there is, if you know the scriptures, you should know this truth. This is prior to the writing of the New Testament. You see this? It follows that this truth is taught in the Old Testament even as I just showed you from the book of Numbers. Jesus is upbraiding Nicodemus here for not knowing this truth because it is in the Old Testament. If it's not in the Old Testament, I'm going to tell you that Jesus was wrong to upbraid Nicodemus for not knowing it. You see that what I'm saying? He's saying you're supposed to know this because it's already in the Scriptures that you're supposed to be the expert in. You shouldn't be surprised by it, Nicodemus. So it's not some New Testament advent that occurred at Pentecost. By the way, Pentecost was not people getting born again. It's the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2, 28 through 32. That can be your Bible study for this week. Go read that. Peter tells in his sermon at the day of Pentecost that that's what's happening here today is the fulfillment of what Joel said back in the second chapter of Joel. Go look at that. And it's a special outpouring of the Holy Spirit that attended the New Testament church in the first century era and assisted them with spreading the gospel and building the church, as it were. That's what its purpose was. And it doesn't have anything to do with getting men regenerated or instituting the notion of regeneration among God's people. So, that's Jesus speaking about the effects of this relentless depravity it puts man in a condition where he cannot see the kingdom of god unless he's born again and born again is gonna be something god does now paul does a similar thing lays it out in romans chapter 3 and we'll look at that briefly i do want to read this i had written down a passage here i want you all to look at i read you the passage in numbers where it's talking about joshua having the spirit of god in him But Peter says something similar in 1 Peter 1 and verse 11. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them. He's talking about the Old Testament prophets. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify, when it testified beforehand, the sufferings of Christ. Peter's saying the same thing. Those people had the Holy Spirit in them. They were born again. So... It's something that was clearly taught in the Old Testament, recognized by both Moses and even the New Testament writers refer back to it. Romans chapter 3, this is kind of Paul's summary of this relentless depravity. By the way, if you're encountering folks of different Christian denominations who have a different take on what constitutes evangelism and spreading the gospel and things like that, a lot of it revolves around... A failure to understand relentless depravity. Like if you don't think man is totally depraved, then you're going to be showing him images of the kingdom of God trying to get him born again. When Jesus said, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. So that difference in your theological take on things results in a different philosophy of ministry. You know what I'm saying? And the sad part about that is that much of what goes on under the rubric of gospel ministry in this world is set about to do a fool's errand. They're trying to do a work that they could never do, and what's more, has already been done. The finished work of Christ ensures that all of God's sheep are going to live in glory. That's just all there is to it. That work is done. So why are we going to go out and try to do something to make that happen? It's going to happen. By the way, that's the declaration of the gospel. There is this real sense in which people who believe that doctrine, they really haven't heard the gospel yet. Now they're involved in a lot of gospel ministry, but if they don't understand this work is finished and Christ did it all, there's elements of gospel mechanics they don't fully understand. And to the extent that they can approach them and embrace them, they're going to improve their understanding tremendously. And by the way, all the efforts that they put into trying to get people into heaven can be redirected toward a more profitable work, which is to try to equip God's people with the truth. That's the ministry of the church. That's what we're supposed to do. By the way, if we really believed that what we do is instrumental in getting people to heaven, I hear a lot of times people talk, well, I I just, you know, I've got this burden for souls. Well, how could you get a moment's sleep? How could you ever go to a golf course and tee up a ball and walk around for 18 holes and how could you ever sit down on a lake and throw a fishing line out there and waste time like that, knowing with every second you're out there piddling around doing something like that, there's another person that could end up in hell just because you decided you're going to, I guess you don't, my burden for soul doesn't exceed my burden to want to be on the golf course. I mean, honestly, if you look at the way people live their lives, I would say this. A lot of people who claim to believe that doctrine, they don't believe it as much as they claim to. And they claim to have this burden for souls, they don't believe it as much as they claim to have it because they're out there playing golf and going to Razorback games and they're playing video games and they're doing all kinds of crazy stuff. All the while, people just falling into hell left and right because they're piddling around. They don't believe it as much as they claim to believe it. And it's ridiculous for them to believe it anyway. Paul talks about this. Now, this is his indictment of fallen humanity. There's none righteous, no, not one. This is verse 10, chapter 3, and verse 10. There's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. Well, we need to be seeker sensitive out there. If we can just find these seekers, we can get them to heaven. If anyone's legitimately seeking God, it's because they have a spiritual sense. They've got spiritual sight because they're born again, they're, they're looking around. I'm trying to find something here, I'm looking for the Savior. I see myself as a sinner, and I need salvation. But in a natural fallen state, in this state of relentless depravity, there's none that seeketh. See that? They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness... Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. This, this doesn't sound very good. I mean, this is the state of relentless depravity. This is the state of a man who is dead in trespasses and in sins. Now, this is the person that the broad world of Christianity is going to look at and say, we've got to put some images of the kingdom of God in front of these people to get them born again. Is that going to work? Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. I mean, that detailed explanation of the state of relentless depravity just shuts down all these avenues that modern Christianity tries to go out and get people born again by. Right? You say keep the law to be eternally saved. well, there's an unrighteous, no, not one. That's not going to work got to take that one on. Study the Bible. Well, there's none that understandeth. You study all you want, you're not going to understand anything. You know why? Because except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He can't understand kingdom concepts and have any sort of spiritual appreciation of them. Seek God. Well, there's none that seeketh. Not in this state of relentless depravity. You say, well, if they'll just search, they'll find the way. Well, they're all gone out of the way. That's not going to work either. Well, just try to do good. Well, there's none that doeth good. No, not one. Well, if they would just confess Christ, hear that a lot. Just confess Christ and you'll be born again. Well, their throat is an open sepulcher and their tongues. They have used deceit and poison of acids under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. You're not going to be able to squeeze in a little bit of confession of Christ in there. Otherwise, it wasn't full of cursing and bitterness. You see that? It's full of cursing and bitterness. You're not going to be able to get a confession of Christ unto the regeneration of their souls. Make peace with God. If they would just make peace with God, you hear people talking about, I have made my peace with God. You did not made nothing. Peace was made by Christ. Amen. That's all there is to it. You may say that as a crass way of expressing, I've come to understand that Christ died for my sins. And I'll try to throw a mantle of charity over that very coarse expression of it, but it's technically very incorrect. Jesus Christ made peace, and you don't have nothing to do with it. I'm glad that there are those who are delighted by that, but they didn't make peace with God. God made peace with men. By the way, the way of peace they have not known. (laughs) That's what Paul says. So, well, if they, would just, if they would just learn to make peace with God, they don't know the way of peace and they can't see the kingdom of God. So how are you going to show it to them? You see how we're shut up and how depravity is this relentless thing man cannot extricate himself from. Well, you know, you just need to preach hellfire and brimstone to these people and we're going to scare them about hell and that's going to get them to run to God. If they could understand how fearful God is, they would run to God and they'd get eternal salvation and become born again. Well, there is no fear of God before their eyes. you got nothing to work with, right? Before I said they're trying to build a spiritual rebirth and all they're working with is the flesh. They can work with that all day long and all they're going to end up with is the flesh because the flesh and the Spirit are separate from one another. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of Spirit is Spirit. They have no fear of God before their eyes. All they've got is the flesh. You can sit there and work on that all day long and you're never going to build spiritual fear of God because that is born of regeneration. Well, that is why depravity is relentless. Jesus makes it clear in his conversation with Nicodemus. He literally teaches the opposite of what many Christians today teach and that should be a jarring reality. It should give occasion to any who believe other than what Christ taught to step back and say, wait a minute, what am I actually teaching here? When I think that I'm trying to show the gospel to people who are dead in trespasses and sins, if they're not born again, they cannot see the kingdom of God. They cannot perceive this. So what am I even doing? This doesn't make any sense. Now, The hope of gospel ministry and bringing people into the church and things like that is that God does regenerate people and He does it immediately. What that means is there's people out there in this world and in your community who are born again. They can see the kingdom of God. And the burden that falls upon us is have we shown it to them? You see that? There's people out there who are already in a born again state. Many of them I think are in wayward forms of Christianity that don't understand this truth. They could benefit tremendously from being instructed in this. And so you shouldn't just assume that because there's this relentless depravity out there in the world, that everyone is a victim of that relentless depravity because the new birth gives man a spiritual sensibility. You see? So that they're not just completely in a state of relentless depravity. That's why you see people out there who are inclined to want to hear the gospel. They want to know the Lord. They want to serve the Lord. These types of spiritual inclinations arise from the new birth. They're evidences of the new birth. And our hope in gospel ministry is that as we preach the truth, we're setting out some sheep food, and people are going to be inclined to move towards it. Now there's many distractions out there, many ways that they can be pulled off the path and I think the devil's done uh, a tremendous work in this world in deceiving people. He can't do anything that's going to prevent one of God's children from ever getting to heaven because Christ's work is unassailable. But he can certainly do things that deceive and trick and seduce God's sheep, keep them from being in the church, keep them from understanding truths that would be tremendously beneficial to their lives. And the gospel ministry that we're involved with is an effort to try to address that issue. We really should be instructing people in the truth, helping build them up in the truth. Once you understand this, by the way, you're not prone to be blown around by every wind of doctrine. When people begin to see the sovereignty of God in salvation, and they start to understand the relentlessness of depravity, they start to understand their own Christian experience in a way that is much more solidifying. You're not stepping back and looking at, well, I, I kind of understood this at this point. Was I really saved then? And then I learned some other stuff. Maybe that's when I got saved. And, and then, well, I, then I learned something about something else over here from, from some other Christian, and I really felt like I learned something there, and, and, that, and maybe that's when I got saved. You step back from this and you realize, no, anytime I had any sort of sincere spiritual sensibility, probably long before any of those things happened, God saved me by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. And any of that stuff that came after is a lagging indicator of the fact that God had already saved you. You should use those spiritual capacities you have to pour yourself into the truths of the Word of God. And as you understand salvation by grace more and more, you become solidified and rooted in the faith that's once delivered to the saints. And then you're not blown around hither and yon by a bunch of crazy doctrines out there. Because all those crazy doctrines revolve around one thing. And that one thing is, Jesus Christ didn't really get the job done. There's a bunch of other stuff that's got to get done too. Once you realize it's a finished work and Christ did it all, then you can enter into discipleship in the proper sense and you can become a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ indeed, literally in how you live your life. And that'll be profitable to you in here and now. So salvation must be God's doing and not man's. That's really what relentless depravity means. We're in such a state that if anyone's going to be born again, they're going to be born again by what God did and not by what we do. By the way, that's yeah, called yeah. grace. That's called grace. Well, do you see it? And do you believe it? Do you love the Lord? Those are all lagging indicators that that grace has been extended to you. Thank you for listening to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church. This has been Elder Dan Sammons preaching in one of our regular meetings. Come and join us as we worship God in the simplicity of Christ every Sunday morning at 416 North Hall Street in Donaldson, Arkansas. At Harmony, we don't have many things you'll find in the popular churches of our day, but we do have a successful Savior. We invite you to come and see.